Good Saturday afternoon, everyone. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, one and all. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, just for a brief moment. Isaiah chapter 6, and as you are turning, allow me to say this. Several of you have inquired about legacy ministry services, and so I just want to say briefly, with permission to do so, I want to say briefly that the ministry that I'm a part of actually started at a mass Bible college 25 years ago or so. Uh, It's a ministry that originally was known as Emmaus Trust Services. And then around the year 2000, uh, give or take, uh, a little bit before then, I think, it hived off and became known as Believer's Stewardship Services. And then last year, January 1 of 2023, we had a branding change and a name change only. Uh, Our services remain the same. Became known as Legacy Ministry Services. And... Legacy Ministry Services often gets confused with a variety of other ministries that we are familiar with. Many think for some reason we are CMML. We are not. Many think for many reasons we are Stewards Ministries. We are not. Many people think we are Stewards Foundation. We are not. Many people think we're Assembly Care Ministries. We are not. We, however, work with all those ministries. And so there's good reason for confusion. We are no longer officially in any way, shape, or form part of Emmaus Bible College, but there's still connection there and Emmaus worldwide. So there's good reason to be confused in regards to who we are and what we do. And so I just want to simply say this. If you want to better understand who we are and what we do, there is a flyer by the guest book uh, as you walk in. Feel free to grab one of those, and it will highlight the three ministries we primarily are involved in. What are those three ministries, you ask? Thanks for asking. They are these things. Number one, we help people set up their estate plan. Statistics would say that over 60% of people don't have an estate plan. Perhaps they began it, and they have a simple will, but a lot of the things that ought to be included for a lot of good reasons aren't. And so we come alongside people, and we help them set up their estate plans. So number one service we offer is estate planning. Sometimes related to that, we assist people in the area of, uh, of plan giving. Plan giving is a way for people to give back to ministry, to give back to the Lord's work through some tax-advantageous uh, plan giving tools, like a charitable gift annuity, or like a donor-advised fund. There's all sorts of ways to give back to the Lord's work, and we help with that in the area of of planned giving. The third aspect of our ministry is what we call ministry support. Ministry support. And so we help local churches. We help camps. I was just at a conference with about 25-plus camps. We help camps and local churches, and other parachurch ministries make sure that they are set up as they ought to be according to the law of the land, the IRS. So we help them with uh, 501c3 status. We help them with the review of their bylaws and governance documents. 
some don't have those at all, and so we help them create them. They have them. We help them review them, making sure the appropriate measures for protection and uh, incorporation as appropriate are in place. We also help them develop a plan for dissolution. If and when a ministry has to come to a close, there are a lot of things that have to be sorted out. And we help them with those sorts of plans as well. And you'd be surprised, but we're doing that kind of thing week after week, day after day, day after day, helping folks make hard decisions to dissolve uh, ministries they've been a part of for a long, long time. We help them start ministries, too, and that's part of it as well. Those three things summarizes what we do. Estate planning, plan giving, ministry support. They're explained in far more detail in the flyer I referenced in the back if you would like to secure one. We also have an arm that used to be part of Legacy Ministry Services. It's hived off unto its own uh, for just uh, legal purposes, but it's uh, in the area of wealth management, and we have an arm that assist with that as well. I will say no more, but if you want to talk about any of these items, feel free to let me know. We are a service and support ministry. Somebody asked me last week, oh, it was still this week, actually. They asked me this week, what do you love? Dennis, you asked me it, I think. I think you asked me. What do you love about being involved in legacy ministry services? And I said this, and it's really true. I love just being able to help. I love being able to come alongside and help serve and support uh, as needed through the services we offer. So it's a ton of fun. More could be said, but it will not be. Our theme for the weekend is what? I forget. Help me remember. That's right. The complete theme, how to avoid spiritual frostbite in 2024. How to avoid spiritual frostbite in 2024. And we talked yesterday, last evening, about what physical frostbite is. And uh, we, we made a connection, a correlation uh, to spiritual frostbite. The reality of being dull, the loss of feeling, cold, desensitized to the things of God and to knowing and following hard after him. I told you last night, but maybe you weren't here or maybe you weren't tuning in or maybe you've already forgotten. When I was in seminary, I was so grateful to receive this little pamphlet that had that question on it. How to avoid spiritual frostbite in seminary. And they rightfully reminded all of us that it is a place where you can become arrogant. It is a place where you can become prideful. It is a place where you can think that, you know what, I know something and become self-reliant as a result. The other day I was in my office at home thinking about our theme for the weekend and I jotted down some causes of spiritual frostbite. What are some of the causes that might cause us to be dull or desensitized or numb or cold to uh, spiritual things. And, and, and here's a list that is not profound or inspired, but some of the things that might come to mind. Pride, we've mentioned that. Arrogance and ego, those are the big three. 
But here are a few more. Self-reliance, independence, complacency, worldliness, unhealthy influences. I want you to think for a moment about the things that are influencing you. We talk about being an influencer. It's a very popular concept these days. Let me just remind you that we are all influencers. We all are. We are all influencers and we are all being influenced. And so I want to ask you to consider what kind of influencer are you and how indeed are you being influenced? Unhealthy influences can cause us to be spiritually frostbitten. Disobedience is another concept that, that could cause our spiritual, spiritual frostbite. Laziness. Discouragement. Loneliness. Isolation. The wrong use of our senses. We talked about today how we have been given... God-given senses, the ability to see and hear and touch these senses we can use in a healthy and appropriate manner or in a negative manner. All these, all these things can bring about the reality of being spiritually frostbit. We looked last night at a test case in Hebrews chapter 5. We looked at a condition that is like or uh, symptomatic of spiritual frostbite. It's a condition known as being dull of hearing. Literally, it means what? Heavy in the ears. Coming to the point in place where you think you know enough. Where you think you know more than somebody else. Where you don't have any interest in hearing anymore, learning anymore, growing in God's goodness and grace. And so the author of Hebrews, wanting, wanting them and wanting us to see that Christ is better, warns us to be growing and to be using time wisely and spending it in God's Word, seeing that there are three benefits. Do you remember the three benefits of using God's Word appropriately? Number one, we dine on the good stuff. Solid food. Number two, we are at home with, we're accustomed to, we're familiar with the word of righteousness. Number three, we have our senses trained to discern the difference between good and evil. And so I asked you some questions, many last night, and maybe you jotted them down, maybe you remember them, but uh, concerning him, do you have much to say? That's how the warning begins. Concerning him, our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say. But it's hard for us to, be, to explain, the author says, because you have become dull of hearing. I ask you your number. Not your phone number, but rather your number in regards to how long you've known the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And we talked about those years. That'd be great to talk about over our, our meal together. What is your spiritual number? How long have you known Christ as your Savior? 55 minus 8, 47 was my number. What is yours? How long have you been a believer? 
We asked and answered the question or tried to get you to think about how will you spend your 1440? How will you spend the minutes you have been given in any particular day? How will you spend those? The author tried to get us to see and tries to get us to see that as time marches on, we are being diligent with that time to use God's word appropriately. We had a sevenfold presentation and summary of this passage last night. We had seven men come up front and remind us of the pattern we have seen in this text. Let's just review. Do you remember it? Time plus truth multiplied by practice, practice, practice equals spiritual maturity, right? We've been warned. That's the warning. We didn't finish the warning. It covers all of chapter 6 as well in Hebrews. But the warning to use time appropriately and to spend it in God's word and not just learn what it says, but to live out what it says. That's what a disciple is, by the way. A learner and liver of what Christ thought and taught. Discipleship always includes impartation and imitation. Both of those together, learning and living. And so as we learn the truth of God's word, we live it out. And as we do, and we cut straight, 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly divide, handle accurately the word of truth. We dine on the good stuff, solid food. We're at home with the word of righteousness, familiar with it, comfortable with it, because we've been there. And our senses are able to discern what is right and what is wrong. There's another case study that I'd love for us to consider today. We'll look at this case study, Lord willing, for the duration of our time. I'll give thanks for the meal that has been provided uh, at five minutes of the hour, give or take. We'll look at the, yes, the case study uh, this this, uh, evening together before and after uh, we dine, and then we will consider prescriptions to avoid another spiritual frostbite condition. I invited you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and I want to just ask you, do you recall how Isaiah chapter 6 begins? Anybody know how it begins? It's a familiar passage. How does Isaiah chapter 6 begin? In the year of King Uzziah's death. And then typically, what do we do? We typically go on and continue to read and consider what happened in the year of King Uzziah's death. We're not going to do that tonight. Tonight, I would rather spend a good bit of time with you in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And I want us to spend some time there because I would submit to you this. We really do not understand the significance of why Isaiah dates the vision he receives. Why does he put a date on it? Why does he identify for us in Isaiah chapter 6 the time in which he received that incredible vision 
of our great God. Why does he say this just so happened to occur in the, in the year that King Uzziah died? Why? It's important to understand the historical backdrop. It's important to understand how the children of Israel, God's chosen people, what they had most recently experienced and become familiar with, and what they are now lacking and will never have in the same way again until ultimately the king of kings and lord of lords rules and reigns. And so it's significant that in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, the statement is made in the year of King Uzziah's death. So we understand why the timing of this vision is so crucial, not only for Isaiah, but for God's people, Israel. Uzziah. Uzziah, when you think of the name, it was Shakespeare, wasn't it, who made famous uh, What's in a Name? Uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? Uh, for us, sometimes names don't have that significant of a meaning. I was talking to Sean last night as they are expecting their their fourth child in a, a month or so. And I, I, I said, OK, I, I don't remember. Do you share the gender ahead of time? And can you confirm that? And then said, but we don't have a name. We don't have a name. And so they have time. They have time. Um, Sometimes we, we choose names for very important, significant reasons. What the names mean, the history of the name within a family unit, uh, and so forth. Sometimes they don't have any major significance. We just like the names. In the Old Testament, names had significant meanings. And I want to just, I want to just re- remind you that This particular individual had two names, Um, a personal name, if you will, and a throne name. Uh, We find out just a little bit about Uzziah in in Kings, and there he's referred to as whom? Do you recall? Azariah, exactly. And so we know that Uzziah, his royal or throne name, is the same person as we find in the book of Kings, as Azariah. Azariah is his personal name. So he has a royal name, a throne name, and a personal name. And they have meanings that are are crucial. They're crucial for us in understanding the significance of his rule and reign, his triumph, and unfortunately his tragedy. King after king after king. There's four in a row in this section uh, that start well and, and end terribly. Triumph and, and tragedy. And oh, how it would have been so sweet if Uzziah would have remembered the importance of the meaning of his name. Actually, the meanings of his names. King Uzziah, the name Uzziah means this, and I love it, and we desperately need to be reminded of this. Here it is. You ready? Yahweh is strong. Don't you love that? Yahweh is strong or Yahweh is my strength. Let me ask you uh, tonight this question. 
does that, does the meaning of the name Uzziah mean anything to you personally? To be reminded that we have a God, the one true God who is what? Who is strong. Don't you love that? Yahweh is strong. Yahweh is my strength. That's significant, isn't it? Highly significant for King Uzziah, but for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that name brings us hope and strength and comfort in the midst of life, a life full of difficulty. Yahweh is strong. We need to be reminded tonight in this weekend uh, uh, that that is our God. He is our strength. Not only is he our strength, he is strength, period. Yahweh is strong. Yahweh is my strength. Be reminded of that tonight. Anybody struggling? Anybody going through difficulty? Anybody going through heartache? Anybody going through sorrow, trial, adversity? The reality is we are either going through it or we have just gone through it or we are going to go through it. It's a guarantee of the Christian life. And we have to be reminded that our God is strong. I love that. Brings me, brings me great comfort and great hope. Azariah has a, a different meaning and a significant meaning as well and an important one for this individual. His triumph in tragedy for him to recognize and realize something that he, he acknowledged a lot of the way along the way, but something that he lost sight of as well. Azariah means this, Yahweh helps. I love that. Yahweh has helped is the rendering of the name Azariah. Something that I have come to realize in, in and through some difficult circumstances the last several years is this. I am so desperate for help. You are so desperate for help. We are needy, dependent people. And we need help. It's hard to admit it. I was forced to admit it over the last several years in a variety of circumstances that I can't do this. I'm insufficient. I'm inadequate. I need assistance. I need help. And what a great reminder that we have that our God is that way. Yahweh helps. Yahweh has helped. So think of the two names and put them together. And what a great summary of what life ought to look like. Yahweh is strong. He's got this. He's got us. He's got it all. Yahweh is strong. And Yahweh helps. So the one who has everything under control, the one who rules and reigns, the one who is strong, also is tender and caring and compassionate. 
and he helps us. Bless you. There was an occasion, as you know, I went through a, a difficult season with uh, a virus that we all are somewhat familiar with these days. Some dark days for me, some challenging days. And through that season and, and year and a half or so of recovery, we, we have emphasized as a family these concepts, that our great God is, is tender in his mercies. He's tender in his mercy, and he's sustaining in his grace. Sustaining grace and tender mercy, those themes have become so apparent to us. And there was a, an occasion during that season of difficulty and recovery that I was reminded of uh, an aspect of our great God and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. There's a word that is used to describe all three of them. If we look in John's gospel, the, the Holy Spirit is described as what? What are we promised? What will come? A what will come? A helper. What's that word? It's the word paraclete. Paraclete, a helper. In 1 John, I understand you're going to be studying 1 John, or maybe you've even begun. What a great study. In 1 John, we are told that we have an advocate with, with the Father, and, and, and who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ, he is our advocate, same word or a version of the word paraclete, advocate, someone who helps us. So listen, be reminded that the Holy Spirit is described as our helper. My dad taught me this phrase the last five years or so of his life. He would say it to me often. Uh, maybe it was even longer than that, 10 years. But he would often say, John, don't forget, the helper will help. The helper will help. The Holy Spirit helps us. The Lord Jesus Christ is our go-between, our advocate. The Lord Jesus Christ, he helps us. And then in Second, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1, uh, our great God, the Father, is described in, in what way? As the father of what? The father of mercies and the God of all comfort, right? Father of mercies. And don't forget what that means. I think I've shared it with you before, uh, but maybe you forgot. Maybe we need the reminder. Father of mercies means this. Mercy itself is found there in him. It is sourced. You want mercy? It's sourced in the father. He's the father of mercies, but also he's described as being merciful. Tender in his mercy, sustaining in his grace. The father of mercies and the God of all what? Comfort. And you know that word comfort is used over and over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's, it's almost as if it's a, a tongue twister when you try to read it. Uh, and, and it's all over. You can't miss it. You know what that word is? The same one that describes the helper, the Holy Spirit. The same one that describes the Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate. The God of all comfort, same word. Or a, a variation of that root word. What does that say about the Trinity? What does it say about the Godhead? 
They all want to help us. I can't get over that. We should close in prayer. That's phenomenal. Here we have the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they all long to come alongside, lift up, assist, encourage, aid all of us who are in need. And let me just say to you this. That's all of us. And the sooner you can get over you and the sooner I can get over me, the better. Where we can acknowledge that we cannot do this on our own. We need, we need divine help and divine enabling. I'm desperate for it and so are you. But tell me this, just with, the, with a nod or a, 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 an amen if you will. How many of you have along the way experienced help from the Godhead in your circumstances of life. I mean, really and truly, have we not? Where we have experienced this divine enabling, this divine help, where we can't, can't explain it and, and can't even comprehend it, but we have this peace as a result in the midst of, of suffering and struggle. So listen to me when I say this king who started his reign early needed to be reminded of that. Yahweh is strong, no doubt. Don't you forget it. Yahweh is strong, but Yahweh helps. Yahweh helps. Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us details about King Uzziah. I don't think the pages of Second Chronicles in your Bible are worn out as other passages of God's Word might be. And so what a great opportunity for us to look at a bit of the detail. We'll look at the, the first few verses for the next few moments, and we'll, we'll try to finish it after we have a meal together, which is always challenging. But let's just consider what we, what we see here. Moms and dads who might be here tonight and grandparents who might be here tonight or just individuals who might be here tonight, we see some incredibly important patterns in the life of King Uzziah that we need to embrace and hold on to. I want you to see it tonight. Notice what it says in verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, Yahweh is strong, took Uzziah who is 16 years old. I told you last night my son is 15 uh, Johnny and my daughter is 17. Right in between uh, Johnny and Anna Kate would be Uzziah. <laughs> now listen, I love my kids and I am incredibly biased. You know that to be true, right? But I can admit to you this, they are not ready for royalty. They are not ready to rule and reign. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine that? Here's a 16-year-old. 16, and we know that he reigned for 52 years. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16, year, 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. Notice, by the way, what it says about Amaziah in the previous chapter. Again, if you go back and look at the previous kings and you see their, their patterns, first half of the chapter, triumph. Second half of the chapter, tragedy. Notice what it says in chapter 25, verse 2, about Amaziah, the father of Uzziah. 
Amaziah, he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with the whole heart. That's interesting, isn't it? He did the right thing, but his whole heart wasn't in it. When I was with you in August, I know you remember it clearly, we talked about wholeheartedness. We looked at Caleb's chapter in Joshua chapter 14, where it said, but Caleb followed the Lord his God fully. Others said that of Caleb as well, but Caleb followed the Lord his God fully, wholly, wholeheartedly, all-hearted. That's what Caleb means. And this king did the right thing. That's, that's, that's good. But he didn't do it with his whole heart. And that's bad. And we know the reality is that that probably is symptomatic as to why the last half of his chapter is just like his son's. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. Uzziah continues some things his father was about, and we see that in in verse 2. He he built Eloth and restored it in Judah, a seaport reality, after the king slept with his father. So he's continuing what his father had started. Verse 3 says this, Uzziah was 16 years old, if you hadn't already known it, noticed. Verse 1, it says that. Verse 3, it says that. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. Verse 4, would you please see this with me tonight? What, what was the secret of his success? What what did he do that brought about this first half of the chapter triumph? Notice the the pattern we see in verse four. And he did right. Does that sound familiar? His dad did right. Previous chapter, verse two. Uzziah, it says, and he did right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done this idea of doing right. And the sight of the Lord is to not only know what he wants and requires, not only have uh, a sincere desire to obey him, but a willingness to also trust in him. All that is, is represented in this idea of doing right. And I want you to see and I want you to understand that somewhere along the way he was taught that that's important. Remember last night what we saw in Hebrews chapter 5, that you'll be able to to discern what is good and what is evil. You'll be able to tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. We see in John chapter 8, we abide in, in his word. We will be his disciples indeed. We'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. We'll be able to discern. Our senses will be trained to determine what is right and what is wrong. So notice something that happened in the life of King Uzziah. Somewhere along the way, great Shema-like, he was taught that here's what God says. And here's what God is like. And here's what God requires. And here's what God wants you to do. And here's the standard. Here's the pattern. Here's the absolute. And do it. And when you do it, don't miss this, you will be blessed. Doesn't mean that you'll get the vehicle you want, or it doesn't mean that you'll have uh, an impressive portfolio. It doesn't mean that you'll have success as the world describes it. 
But it does mean that you will have this blessedness that only comes from God. It does mean that the God of all purpose and the God who plans and the, and the, and the God who uh, has promises for us reveals to us how to go about doing life in his word. And when we do life God's way, which is the best way, and obey, we're blessed. I'm not talking prosperity theology like you see on TV. I promise you this, that if you're a believer in Christ, you're going to go through the hurt box more often than not. You're going to suffer. And we're privileged to suffer well, we find in Peter, right? So I'm not saying life will be easy and life will be just shoots and ladders and, and candy land. But I am saying that doing life God's way, as I say to my kids all the time, doing life God's way is the best way. So obey, not just out of duty because you're told to, even though that's enough, but out of the natural conclusion that if, if God, the maker creator, says this is what life looks like and how you ought to do it, it makes sense for me to do it his way. And so there's also this delight when you do life the way the designer maker has purposed. He's a God of plan. He's a God of purpose. He's a God of promise. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because Uzziah was taught that. He was taught that there's an absolute. There's a way to live. There's a right. There's a wrong. And it's God's way. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. I guarantee you this, sports fans. Jechaliah had much to say about that. His mom, and there were others who influenced him positively. Who, who indeed is influencing your children? Who's influencing you? And what kind of influence are you being? Notice there's another individual in verse 5 that we, we learn about. And it's not the Zechariah of the New Testament, the connection with Elizabeth and John the Baptist. It's not that Zechariah's. It's not the Zechariah that we find later in the Old Testament as a book of the Bible. It's a different one. We don't know a ton about. But we know this. This guy, Zechariah, influenced Uzziah in a positive way. So notice we see influencers, mom, dad, others, pouring in, saying, guess what? Doing life God's way is the best way, so obey. Verse 5, will you look at it with me? And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. So here's another person, another influence in the life of Uzziah that steered and guided and prodded and exhorted and implored and encouraged. And there was positive result. He did right, verse 4. Verse 5, and he continued to seek God. Again, doing right, seeking God is not only understanding who God is and what he's like and what he says, but purposing to obey and to trust him. That's all involved in those loaded phrases. He did right, and especially he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. Look at the end of verse 5, and as long as... As he sought the Lord, God prospered him. 
No, now let's not get all prayer of Jabezy here, and not let's not get all again prosperity theology oriented here. What we see is a God who says, "Here's how to here's how to roll, here's how to live, here's how to uh, function, here's how to roam about the planet." And when you do life my way, there's blessing. I remember my dad doing a series on the Ten Commandments. Maybe you do too. He did a series on the Ten Commandments and he flipped them. Not saying they said something other than they said. That would be poor hermeneutics and bad interpretation. And uh, dad was not about that, as you know. But he looked at each of the Ten Commandments, nine of which are repeated in the New Testament. And he says, listen. Look at the blessing if you do this. Look at the reward if you follow this. Look at that for your own life and for your marriage and for your family and for your life in your community. Look at what it would look like if we did it his way. So there's a pattern here, and I'm deliberately going slow so we understand a little bit about why Uzziah did what he did and what he was taught growing up. And maybe you as parents, grandparents, individuals can commit anew and afresh to saying, we've got to do what God says. We've got to live life God's way. And when we do, we will have God's blessing. He wants us to enjoy the abundant life now and glory to come. We're just tasting the good stuff. The best is yet to come. But the abundant life is not just for glory. It's for now in light of glory. And he makes known to us a pattern that we are to follow. So much more could be said. What we find in verses 6 through 15, and we will not cover all of this before we give thanks for the meal, but we'll pick up here in a bit. We find what life looked like for Uzziah as he did what he was brought up and taught to do. Verse 4 again, he did right. Verse 5, and he continued to seek God. There's this pattern. And so it starts in verse 6. And I just want you to see, and I'll try to highlight them for you, all the areas of life where he was successful. Because Yahweh is strong. Because Yahweh helps. Watch what happens in the life of King Uzziah. 16 and as he reigns for 41 or 42 years, because the demise is about a 10 to 12 year period of time, I think. You can check it on your own. But watch what happens. Now he went out and warred. That's part of the reality of the day and age in which we, they lived. They battled. He warred against the Philistines. He warred. And he broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabneh, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the areas of Ashdod and among the Philistines. He warred, he broke down, he built. He's having this success and victory militarily. And we see as, as a reminder in the very next verse, as his successes begin... We're reminded of his name. Notice verse 7. And God helped him. And God helped him. 
And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and the Mayunites. Verse 8, the Ammonites also gave tribute. So here he has the God who is strong, the God who helps doing that in his life, right? And he's having military success and he's having financial success. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah. And his fame extended to the border of Egypt. Are you kidding me? He is getting all kinds of followers. So much is made of that in the day and age in which we live. And I don't understand it and never will. And I'm thankful for that. But it's not a new concept. He had all kinds of followers. His fame spread. He's becoming popular. He's successful militarily. He's successful financially. He's successful socially. And his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became what? End of verse 8. What does it say? He became very strong. In verse 7 and in verse 8, you know what we see? His names. God helped, and he became very strong. There's a word that we see and we'll see numerous times and I'll end with this as uh, we're about to give thanks for the meal before us. But that's not all. That's not all. There's what? There's more. Notice what it says in verse 9. Moreover. Notice what it says in verse 11. Moreover. Notice what it says in verse 14. Moreover. What do we see in the first half of this chapter that maybe you've never read or it's been a while since you've read it? We see that Yahweh is strong, and we see that Yahweh helps. I want to close with just a reminder. We'll pick up at verse 9 after we dine. I want to close with a reminder tonight uh, from my own life of uh, these concepts that have been very important uh, along the way, that in and of ourselves, we can't do this. We need help from a God who is strong. I've shared this with some of you along the way in camp settings or other settings, but allow me to share it again before we dine. Um, I am partial to using a Ryrie study Bible. Uh, this one is worn out. My, parent, uh, my parents, hello. My wife and children just bought me a new one for my 55th birthday in December, and I haven't had the courage to break it in yet. You know how it is. You just get accustomed to, right? Well, I've had a bunch of these over the years, but the first one I ever had a Ryrie study Bible. Uh, I remember being in Dallas, Texas with my parents, my mom and dad, my sisters. Uh, we were in Dallas. I don't know why. Uh, I can't really remember. Probably for ministry, maybe camp ministry, some other ministry. That's the only reason we traveled other than visiting family. And we were on the campus of Dallas Seminary. And my dad said, listen, I want to introduce you to a, a dear friend of mine, one of my mentors, one of my teachers, Dr. Charles Ryrie. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go in your car, in our car, the station wagon. I want you to go get your Ryrie study Bible and have Dr. Ryrie sign it. I was in junior high. I was like Johnny's age, maybe a little younger. And I'm like, what? Go get my study Bible and have the guy whose name is on it sign it. And and I did that. Dr. Ryrie wrote a verse in the inside of my Bible when I was younger than King Uzziah. 
And it was a verse that I would love to say to you. I looked up right away and realized that's it. That's the lesson I need never forget. That didn't happen. Gradually, I started to realize what Dr. Ryrie was saying to this young boy, this young boy who would probably think he was something else and needed to be humbled along the way. And so Dr. Ryrie wrote this. Not that we are adequate. Second Corinthians 3, 5, that's all he wrote. It says this. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to think of anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from him. Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to think of anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from him. I desperately needed to hear that. And I desperately need that reminder. And I desperately need that today to realize I, in and of myself, cannot. I'm inadequate. I'm insufficient. But Yahweh is strong. My God is strong. And my God wants to help. Our God wants to help. He's the God of all comfort. The Lord Jesus Christ wants to help. Our advocate, the Holy Spirit, the helper, wants to help. We have divine help, and we're desperate for it. May we be reminded of that. Let's give thanks for the meal. Let's enjoy, and we'll get back into this ever-so-popular chapter. Father, help us to be reminded of who you are. You are strong. You help. We are desperate for that divine enabling we're desperate for that grace we're desperate for your help because we have to admit when we view ourselves correctly biblically that we in and of ourselves are insufficient we in and of ourselves are in uh insufficient inadequate but our adequacy and our sufficiency comes from you may we dare not lose sight of that help us to view ourselves correctly, appropriately, humbly in your plan and in your program. We ask and pray. We thank you for the meal before us and the privilege to dine together and for those who help prepare and thank you for providing. We just pray that you bless our time together and our meeting to follow as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.